you've also used the term cult experience. Can mm-hmm. can you explain what what that is? A cult experience? Yeah. Well, I mean, what I mean by that is everybody has a different experience, even if they're in the same group, Um, because uh, depending on how old they were, depending on what role they played in the cult, if they were in leadership or not, uh, depending on if they had a family and children. Welcome to the Reclamation Podcast. My name is Aldo Martin. And I'm Cousin Eddie. And together, we're going to explore what it's like to be in and leave a religious cult. For more info on the Reclamation Podcast, find me on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at Aldo B. Martin. I'd like to introduce everyone to our next guest. Uh, She is Professor Emerita of Sociology at California State University. She is the author of seven books relating to cults, coercion, and abusive relationships. She has 30-plus years of experience working with survivors of cults and survivors of narcissistic and abusive relationships. She is one of the founders of an organization called Take Back Your Life Recovery, whose primary mission is to offer psychoeducation to the community of cult survivors and abusive relationship survivors so that individuals get the knowledge and skills that will help them lead a trauma-free life. She is Dr. Yanya Lalich, and we are honored to have her here on our program today. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. And I'm glad I could finally make it. I'm sorry I put you through such drama (laughs) trying to get me here. (laughs) Oh, no, no, no drama at all. No drama at all. all. All good. It was worth the wait, I think. It was worth the wait. So before we get into your background, about uh, cults and, and and all that type of stuff. If you could please tell us more about the Take Back Your Life Recovery Program, what does it what is it what does it do, and who is it designed for? Well, um, I've co-founded it with two trauma therapists who, when they were young, uh, were sent to those horribly abusive boarding schools, which is now called the Troubled Teen Industry. Uh, So they also have a cult background like I do. Um, And we started Take Back Your Life Recovery um, primarily to offer courses for uh, people who've come out of cults, come out of cult-like families, abusive or narcissistic relationships, or the troubled teen industry, uh, religious abuse, spiritual abuse. You know, they all have the same pattern. And people go through the same issues in their recovery from those experiences. So we teach a variety of courses that are uh, about four or five sessions long. They're two hours each. And we do it as, uh, as you said, as psychoeducation, meaning that we will do presentations, short presentations on whatever topic is relevant. Um, but we'll also always have time for Q&A. Uh, we try to keep the attendance to about 20, which even that is a lot, but we've got such demand. We don't want to turn people away. Um, and they've really, they've really been fantastic. We've been doing them for about a year now. And, and, and the, uh, the courses are of a remote nature? Yes, yes, yes. They're on Zoom. So we've actually had people from Sweden, from Mexico, from Spain, from Holland, uh, quite a few from Canada, 
as long as they can work out the time difference, um, you know, we're able to do it. We do them on Saturdays uh, in the morning and then Wednesday evenings. And um, so we are usually running two, two different ones at the same time. Uh, we're also in April going to be a, doing a course, um, a, a CE certified course for therapists, which we're really excited about because so many therapists don't understand how to work with these types of clients. Um, I, I, have an, I have a question about that. Um, you know, this episode is going to be airing sometime in the summer. Will such a course be taking place again in the fall or another time? They'll be going on through the summer. We have a couple new courses um, starting in May. We have a special course for troubled teen industry survivors. In July, we're doing a course for people who were born or raised in a cult um, because they have very different issues from those of us who joined as adults. Um, so, yeah, we'll, we go all year round. We're, we're trying to take August off just to give ourselves a little break and maybe go on a vacation and maybe we can fly by then. <laughs> you know? So, um, but yeah, we, we feel really passionate about this and, um, and make time in our lives to do it. It's, it's very rewarding. It, it sounds like a, a, like a great and comprehensive program. And it also sounds necessary. Because I think that there's a lot of misconception, I think, with cults. Let, let me begin by asking you this. You're quoted as saying, cults are a growing menace around the world. No, oh, did I say that? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. what, what's, what has led you to such a conclusion? Well, you know, as you said in the intro, I've been doing this for over 30 years and um, just over... I'd say over the last 10 years, there's been a huge increase. And, and part of that is offshoots of cults that have started or, you know, cults that may have broken up and then somebody, somebody goes off and, and starts another group. Um, the, the new age movement of the seventies and eighties had a huge impact and um, in all kinds of different belief systems. And then also that seeped into the business world with all these kind of management and leadership courses, not all of which are cults, but often use the same techniques of coercion and control. And then with the, um, with the lovely president that we had before President Biden and um, the pandemic and the, that whole year when people were sheltered in, uh, that led to a whole new phenomenon of sort of cults on the internet and the growth of uh, people joining into those online communities, whether it was about a conspiracy theory, the anti-vaxxer movement, QAnon, you know, white supremacist stuff. Um, that just caused a huge boom. So I, I've I have never been so busy. I've been busier than ever. Uh, yeah, that's. Um... <laughs> That's a good thing and a bad thing, right? Yeah. It, it's good. To, it's good to be busy, but why we're being busy is sometimes can determine if that's good or not. Exactly. You you you've also used the term cult experience. Can mm -hmm. can you explain what what that is? A cult experience. Yeah. Well, I mean, what I mean by that is everybody has a different experience, even if they're in the same group. Um, because uh, depending on how old they were, depending on what role they played in the cult, if they were in leadership or not, uh, depending on if they had a family and children, 
everybody's experience is going to be different. So you 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 know you may have some people who have left, say, the Unification Church, and they say, oh, it wasn't that bad. You know, I had a fine time. I, you know, yeah, I had an arranged marriage, but we've been married ever since, and we have happy children. You know, and then you'll have somebody else who was in the Unification Church who felt that the experience was extremely abusive and traumatic because of the sort of labor trafficking and because of the arranged marriages to someone you've never met, um, because of the character of Reverend Moon himself. And so I guess when I say cult experience, I just mean that each of our experiences is unique, although the similarities lie in the cult itself and the techniques and the patterns that we see in cults. And the similarities lie in the, um, the, the kind of after effects that people may experience. Even if somebody else had a positive experience in the same group? Yes, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Now, over the course of many years, you've become a sought-out expert and authority on the subject of cults. And the reason that this subject of cults is important to you is because you, too, were part of a cult. That's and, right. And however, the cult that you were part of was not religious in nature, right? No. But but it was political instead. And And you were a part of the Democratic Workers' Party in the 1970s. Is that yes. right? Right, 70s and 80s, yes. How did you get involved with that group? Oh, dear. How much time do you have? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll try to do the abbreviated version. Um, I had just moved back to, excuse me, I had just moved back to the United States after living um, <clears throat> on a Spanish island for about four years. These were my hippie days. And I was, so I was new I, I went to San Francisco because a friend from college was there. I was new in town. I was meeting new people. Um, and I had I had been political in the past in my life. I was always sort of a lefty. Um, and at that time, this was the mid-70s. And so the Vietnam War had just ended and people on the left were kind of looking for what to do now. And there were a lot of what were called study groups where people got together and read different revolutionary literature or whatever. Um, so I met a woman who was a friend of my roommate at the time who invited me to join a study group uh, that I thought would be interesting. I always kind of had an intellectual bent and I thought it would be, you know, I'd meet some new people and you know, why not? So I, I joined the study group. I had no idea there was a, an organization behind the study group, that the study group was basically used as a way to recruit, uh, which is very typical of cults. Uh, so after a few weeks, uh, the same person asked to meet with me. Excuse me, I need to drink some water. Spring is springing here, and so there's a lot of pollen in the air. So um, she asked to meet with me again and said, um, well, what, you know, how do you like the study group? I was like, oh, it's great. She said, well, you know, what are you learning? And I said, well, I'm learning that in order to, to really make lasting social change, you have to have a, a, a disciplined Marxist-Leninist party um, because the only times we've seen that are in countries where the revolution was led by a party like that. And so then she said, well, what if we told you we have such a party? And I'm like, what? You know. And so she said, yes, we have this international organization. It's, um, you know, it's multiracial. It's, you know, um, we, we keep it very quiet because we don't want people to know. But 
you know, would you like to join? And I'm like, oh, yeah, I'd, you know, I'd be interested. So she said, uh, so then there's the bait and switch. She goes, well, here, you have to fill out this application and then we'll get back to you. And of course, the application asked me everything about my life, right? You know, my bank accounts, my passport number, my family, what everybody did, what I did, you know. So they knew everything about me at that point. Um, so then they came back and said, oh, yes, you've been accepted. And of course, then my life immediately changed. You know, I was told that I was to be on 24 hour call. I had to pick a new name. I, this was very secret. I couldn't tell anybody. I had to start attending these meetings on weekends. And yes, pick a new name. I mean, yes, a new name. yes. Did, we had- could, could you come up with something like uh did it have to be like a regular name, or could you say something like, um, I don't know, uh, Moon Dog Fifty Five? Can you do that? <laughs> no, it had to be a kind of a decent name. Uh. I, I picked the name Emma um, because there was a little girl in the school that I ran in, in on the island in Spain named Emma, who I just adored. So I called myself Emma. We only had first names, but we were never supposed to tell anybody our real name. Like our roommates were not supposed to know who we really were. We were never supposed to talk about our past. Um, to, so, to each other. To each other. You couldn't tell to that to each other. other. No, no. No one was supposed to know anything about anybody. So from the start, I was always internal to the organization, meaning that I never had an outside job. Uh, we had a finance committee that figured out how many people needed to work to bring in enough money. And then others of us were like full-time staff. And um, and it went from there. We worked basically 20-hour days, seven days a week, week after week, year after year. Uh, in the beginning, we were underground. And then we surfaced and we did a lot of political work in the Bay Area um, I was instructed to start a publishing house, which I did, and we published a newspaper in two languages. We published magazines and books and um, went to conferences around the world. You know, everything was done to basically tout our leader, uh, who was a sociologist, oddly enough, um, and an alcoholic and a narcissist and a megalomaniac. <laughs> All at the same time. Um, but I was always in top leadership and I was, uh, pardon my French, I was a bitch from hell. You know, I modeled myself after the leader and her second in command. And when I got out, I was, I had a lot of guilt and shame. I was like, you know, how did I become that person? Like, who the hell am I? Um, so I was in for 10 and a half years and Oddly enough, we all got out because uh, at one point the leader was out of the country. She was in Bulgaria, which was her dreamland. And and we uh, called everybody together and told them what was going on and uh, took a vote. And we voted to expel her and dissolve the organization. Wow. Yeah. Very unusual ending for a cult. (laughs) So I was going to I was going to ask this then. I didn't I didn't know that that was the the ending of it. Um, While you were there, did you notice any red flags while you remember? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I I certainly noticed things in the beginning. And and like when we I, you know, I had to stop wearing certain clothes and we, you know, I had to act. We had to be like good worker, look like a good worker. And, you know, I had to um, I didn't have time to see any of my friends. And, you know, 
in the beginning, I was really into it. I thought, well, this is great. And this group is really serious. And we're really going to make changes because look how hard we're working. But there were times when there were either criticisms or somebody was expelled or things that were really harsh. And and I would not like it, but I, you know, you're in an environment where there's kind of a code of silence, right? You can't talk about these things. So, you know, the way I see it is you keep shoving these things on this little shelf in the back of your head. And then finally something happens and that shelf breaks, like one too many thing happened. And then you think this isn't good. I got to get out of here. And I felt that for five years. For five years, I wanted to get out of there and I couldn't figure out how. And I would get in my car every day to drive to my facility where I worked. And I would wish that I would be killed in a car accident because it was the, only, was the only way I could see to get out. So that's that psychological trap. So I think you've I think you've told us, you know, in in through example, but explicitly what made this organization a cult in your eyes? Well, we had a leader who. Um, sort of fit the model of the charismatic leader, a charismatic authority. She was completely domineering. Everybody had to worship her. There, you, you could not criticize her or question her about anything. Um, she was, you know, one of the, the typical cult leader, like you never know who's going to turn up, the nice cult leader or the monster, right? And so you're always on your toes. You're like always walking on eggshells because you don't know what's going to happen next. Um, so that, that, you know, leader is one thing, then having an all or nothing belief system, which is what we had, um, you know, we had to, uh, pledge to do this for the rest of our lives. Um, we had to, um, abide by every rule and regulation. Uh, we had to conform and comply in whatever way we were expected. We spent huge amounts of time sitting in a circle, criticizing, somebody or each other for something, um, just tearing people apart. And, um, and we did, we did a kind, you know, we did it, we had an indoctrination program, we had booklets that we taught people how to think how to behave. Um, I actually led what, what we secretly called our brainwashing program, and I was instructed to design it. And, and we called it cadre school. And it was like a special training excuse me, that was meant to basically force you to give up your entire identity and become this model revolutionary. Jesus, uh, this is fascinating. And, and then we had, and to, to finish the question, we had the structure that was set up with all of the influences and controls that kept you in line, right? You had to ask permission to do anything, to leave town, to go see your family, anything like that. Uh, you had to turn over any money you had if you got a tax return or an inheritance. Um, and because we all lived, we didn't all live together, but because we lived on practically nothing, we, you know, we, we crammed as many people as we could into a house. So you live with five or six other people. So you're all watching each other all the time and reporting on each other and reporting security violations. And, you know, so it, it was a very, a very tightly closed, what I call a self-sealing system. It, I, I, I need to pause. I need to pause right there. Um, okay. Cousin Eddie, I'm, I'm curious to hear your input on this. You, 
Cousin Eddie, throughout the first season of the program and now the second season of the program, we've consistently talked about the organization, right? The International Church mm-hmm. of Christ, right? And tell me, man, as an outsider, how do you think about what Dr. Lalich just said and compare that with what other guests have spoken about regarding the ICOC? Do you notice similarities there? Oh, for sure. Um, the the I guess the... I don't really know how to describe it. There's there's like an interesting element of secrecy, but 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 I mean, I guess with the ICOC, it was to get bodies in the seat, but you know, to be um, expelled if and 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 um, what's the term? Uh, cut Ostr- off from everybody that you know. Ostracized, shunned. Yeah, yeah, and it's um, I I mean, Doctor Lalich, you're. I, I guess in my head, I'm assuming that you would probably know this better, but I'm assuming that there are certainly different levels of how um, how easy someone can leave certain organizations. It sounds like yours uh, was a little more aggressive than what I hear about the ICOC, and that's not to demean any hurt or anything that anybody's gone through by after leaving there. It sounds it uh, it sounds like maybe in that political world, it can be a little more. It, it almost from your story I almost feel like a fight. You know what I mean? Like, like I, I it reminded me of um, what's really fascinating to me is it reminded me of a, I just saw a documentary because there's a a huge uptick in all these crime shows that are on now. There's a there's a documentary about the eight in the eighties about this one guy who convinced this man and this woman that he was part of MI six or M one six whatever the the British and yeah. he I, he kind of had no crazy motive other than he just liked the control of these people like it wasn't even like he was having sexual relations with these he just wanted to like tear them apart from their life and had them doing fake jobs and 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 they for they he had they had to forget everybody in their life it was just so it's so fascinating that you're talking about this kind of stuff where it's just i I, and i i guess on a certain level you you deal with these kind of narcissistic relationships Uh, on singular level as well not just kind of cults like like when you're dealing with someone who's like that crazy you know um but but yeah it's uh it's fascinating it's you know i i think what's important to understand is that you know cults exist on a continuum Mm -hmm. from more harmful to kind of more benign, although I don't think any cult is really benign, because for me, part of the definition of a cult is you giving up your autonomy. So that to me is never a benign situation. But and some cults are going to be far more restrictive than other cults, just like some religions are more restrictive and disciplined than some, you know, compare the Catholic Church to the Unitarians, for example, right? So uh, there, there is that difference. But I think the ICOC, you know, certainly there was the regard of the leader. Um, there was control of like who you could date and things like that. Um, sure. Families were broken up. You know, I think there's quite a lot of similarities just from what I know of the ICOC. Right. So, Doctor Lalich, I, I want to. I definitely want to get to that. I, I definitely do. I'm glad you. I'm glad you brought that up. But before we get there. Some of your work uses personal accounts of people mm-hmm. that have been involved in different groups. Why do you think that using personal accounts in your work, why do you think that's effective in explaining cults or cult-like experiences to people that may not have had them? 
Next time on The Reclamation. I- I've heard you say something to the effect of uh, cult leaders are not there to take care of you. Right. Cult members are there to take care of the cult. Exactly. Can you explain that? The, the framework that I use is called bounded choice. And within, so what happens is you join one of these groups and they're, and they're what I call a self-sealing system, right? They're closed off, they're closed within themselves. 